0: Hello, you're listening to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor, and in a moment, I'll be joined by my colleagues, Chris Collins and Dr. Anton Rosenfeld. We've been embracing the cold snap this month and taking a tour of Chris's very own Museum of Curiosities, also known as his shed, as our excitement grows for the upcoming season. For this month's podcast, Sarah Brown is chatting with returning guest Jack Wallington an ecological grower and landscape designer who's created over 70 gardens. Jack recently moved from London to Yorkshire and we'll be hearing all about how the differences in regional climates across the UK have affected his own garden. Then we'll be answering your questions on moving from peat to peat-free compost, looking after your leeks and propagating ginger at home. But now I'm off to join Chris in the potting shed. Hi, Chris. How
1: are you? I'm very well, Fiona. How are you?
0: I'm okay. Going into February. Golly, January's behind us. It's, it's a funny old month, January, isn't it? How, how do you keep busy during that time, Chris?
1: Well, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I kind of always think it's... I really enjoy January, to be honest with you, because I like winter. and So I spend a lot of time looking at trees because um, it's a special farm to do that. But gardening-wise, it's it's not a great deal going on. I do have an obaceous, very thin obaceous border on my allotment that all needs lifting and dividing. So I have kind of, as an ongoing project for the winter, I have been keeping warm down there doing that.
0: You're lifting what?
1: Well, all the basis perennials. I've got quite a big can collection, which I'm interested to see whether it survives or not, because we've had some pretty hard frost and snow up here in December. We've planted a lot of exotics in this country over the last sort of two decades, and formiums, a lot of hebes, a lot of New Zealand stuff. And I wonder whether now we get we get really a cold about how much of that's going to survive. So I'll be... Lifting and divided my canners and seeing how well they coped. But generally, perennial herbaceous plants, I think my philosophy, they do this at places like Edinburgh Botanics, every three to four years, lift and divide. That means you've got more stock. You can give that away or pot it up, do what you want with it. But it also induces vigour. It encourages the plant to stay strong and not get too old and woody and, and hollowed out in the centre. So it's good practice. Obviously, don't do it when it's freezing cold and the soil's frosty. But if you get a mild week, this is quite a good time to do it between now and March or that sort of time I have
0: to say Chris I am so guilty of looking at my plants later on in the season and wishing I'd done that and actually it hadn't occurred to me to do it in February you know and I I always sort of think this is not the time to do it but actually they're strong enough and hopefully they will survive the more tender ones that you were talking about before the canners, I'm fretting because I left my dahlias in and I think that was probably a huge mistake
1: it's possible. We just don't know, you know, until we get into the spring, you don't know what will happen. Um, I have lost cannons in the past where they on the balcony where we've had frost on there and they've just not reappeared. So it is possible. I'm in dividing is fine in the winter as long as the, the weather's mild. But I think at some point we might have to readdress how we plant exotics. Because when I started, you wouldn't have dreamt of putting cannons in an oasis border. Now we do it. It's because we've had this milder sort, of milder weather.
0: No, you're right, and I, I think also in my case, you know, it's just laziness. I, I left them in and thought, oh, they'll probably be all right. But actually, you know, that's that's a risk, and I and I really a, a risk I shouldn't have taken. Let's get onto less risky territory, Chris. Um, your annuals, I know you always make a big display of your annuals um, on on the balcony and on the allotment. But 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 tell us a little bit about you know how you you plan for that display.
1: My hardy annuals are one of the pride and joy of my allotment. I sow them in, in pollinator borders all along the sides of the veg. But I will just be preparing in February. I will just be getting the ground ready. So I will be slightly forking it over. I'll put down string lines where I want to drill sow in. I'll just get it all nice and raked. It's going to be absolutely perfect for when I actually start sowing, which will probably be around mid-March as the soil starts to warm up a bit. I've got all my seeds saved. I always save my my hardy annuals now. I don't buy any. So they're they're collected in the autumn at the end of the season. They're dried off and then they're put in Tupperware. So I have my shed, my lovely shed. I love my shed like all gardeners do. Uh, There's lots of um, packets of seeds in Tupperware that are ready to go for that seed sowing in March
0: so you're preparing the ground and, and and so that so that you don't waste any time when when the when the right conditions are there
1: Yes, it is. I, I mean, also psychologically it helps me because I can't wait for spring. I'm generally getting excited. So by doing that, I kind of prepare my mind for the upcoming growing season. And I think a lot of gardeners are the same. It's very easy, whether you're a professional or an amateur, to jump the gun when it comes to seed sowing. You just really, everyone gets excited. It's, it's, I can totally understand that. So rather than jumping the gun, I go through this preparation and it just helps me on the journey towards when we can get going.
0: And I'm trying to visualise now, because it's such a good time of year, isn't it, to think ahead to the colour that, that that's that's in store for us later in the season. Give us an idea of the burst of colour we're going to expect on your allotment.
1: Well, you know, I, I mean, to me, my hardy annuals are one of my, obviously I love the organic food off it, but I also absolutely love the colour I, I run through it. So I'll, have, I'll save seed, I've got sweet pea. Well, sweet pea's quite interesting because I might buy a cultivar. Now it's all reverted to its more natural firm. But I've got a Kedisha, Californian poppy, poppies, cornflowers. I've got a lot of different kinds of sunflower. Um, um, English marigolds, one of my favourites, very simple English marigold. Gets covered in bees and butterflies. See, I just get these streams of colour that run along the lengths of the allotment and the lengths of the of the of the of the edible plants. And it just brings the whole allotment to life. It looked so beautiful last year. I'm generally getting excited about the prospect of it this year as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a, a, an unbelievable kind of payback, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, I must admit, you really c- caught my imagination when you just started talking about putting the seed in the Tupperware <sighs> and putting it in your shed. So I think we need to pause and have a little tour of the shed. Chris, <laughs> I know I don't think the shed's terribly big, is it? But I'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about how it's looking at the moment.
1: Well, it's tiny. It's actually, it's a half a shed because we, we have a shed on the plot and then one half belongs. They put a wall down the centre. One half belongs to my neighbour and one to me. But I love, I love that shed. I remember being an apprentice and seeing sheds there and it's like a museum of curiosities almost. There's all these little yes. bits and bobs in there.
2: Absolutely. I, I, I
1: love I go into a tool shop. I just get absorbed in it. But my shed is, all my tools hang from the sides of the shed. That's very good storage. I always wash and oil them this time of year so they're ready for the season. And then I have all my seed. Seeds on one side, so there's lots of Tupperware with lots of seeds. I have a lot of heritage seeds in there that I, I use as well. For my hardy annuals, other seeds. Uh, Crates where I store veg in sand, so my carrots and my potatoes. My turnips, I've got a lot of them Swedes. And then I've just got lots of bits and bobs, like my pets for covering the ground.
0: Have you got a kettle in there? Have you got a kettle in I there? I've got no
1: power, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a flask man. <laughs> I have to take a flask. <laughs>
0: there is just something incredibly special about sheds and and actually this is the time of year to really appreciate your shed and give your shed some love isn't it
1: i must admit i like organization so it all gets pulled out and i did it just after christmas pulled out oiled, put back sorted and then i i feel if my shed looks good the rest will follow that's kind of how it works you know
0: you said something about that, the mental preparation for the season. It, it, it's part of that too. Yes, isn't it?
1: absolutely. The psychology of it is definitely uh, plays a big role in it. Especially as we roll towards March, and your excitement bills, The days start getting longer, and you can smell it almost. You know, and you, you're ready to go. You're ready to go.
0: You just talked a little bit then about storing your veg in sand. and We've touched on that before when we've talked about it, but I'm completely fascinated by it. And one thing I forgot to ask you um, last month was how you got on with the cabbage. Because you said on the podcast before Christmas that you'd grown a beautiful cabbage. I don't don't know the variety. You'll tell me in a minute. And you had stored it in sand, in your shed, ready for Christmas Day. So so just talk us through that for a minute.
1: Well, it was a red cabbage. I can't remember the variety off the top of my head, I must admit. But I stored it like I what I call a huggy, which is what I've saw in the past, where you put veg, usually root crops, into sand... You could do this in the shed and boxes like I did, but you could also do it outside in a, in a a water butt, an old water butt with drainage holes, put it in and then lay them up. I did eat the cabbage Christmas Day, so it was only in there for about six weeks, I think, not that long. So I wonder whether it might have not lasted any longer, but it did its job for the moment, so it was worth trying.
0: Definitely, and have you been harvesting more from the allotment just just in the last few
1: weeks? Oh well, I had a cauliflower, the last of the cauliflowers off yesterday. You know, the the cold snap really brings the flavor out in a brassica, and I had it with we had it with uh, cauliflower cheese last night, it was absolutely marvelous. I've also got some amazing turnips. I love turnip; um, they're coming out the ground, I'm digging them out as well, and we've been having them for Sunday dinner, and they have been absolutely wonderful.
0: I must admit, Chris, I do wish that I had an allotment next to yours. I'm very (laughs) envious of your neighbours on the allotment being able to, A, get the benefit of all your expertise, but B, also get a bit of spare produce from time to time. (laughs) Yeah, a bit
1: of spare Always that, we're always swapping. To be fair, my neighbours, although we have a little run of them and they're all pretty good allotmenteers as well. So it's quite a nice little community and that food swapping goes on a lot and I really feel that's a big part of allotmenteering.
0: <laughs> and I know you've got your compost heaps down there too. Um what what's happening on the compost heaps at this time of year?
1: Well, I will sort I turned mine, one of them. I I both hot and cold compost on my allotment. And for that, what that basically means is I one of the bays, they're all sort of homemade out of pallets, one of the bays I turn, I turn it quite a lot through the season. I'll probably water it if it hasn't rained for a while. Difference between the two really is time. And also the quality of the compost. So the hot one, I, turn, I always turn it with my arms because I've got a lot of slow worm on my allotment and uh, they're good for eating kill slugs and stuff. I always get nested in there. So I, always, I never put a fork in because I don't want to damage them. So I turn it, which is a double bonus because I love getting covered in soil and muck. So I quite, <laughs> my missus ain't too impressed when I come home, but I love doing that. Um, so I turn that and that comes quicker. I get that going in a season. The cold compost takes a lot longer Probably I'd leave it two seasons. A bit like leaf mould, I leave it two seasons. But I tend to find that the hot compost is much rougher, much coarser than the cold compost. The cold compost is much finer, much it's a better quality, I think. But you need more patience.
0: Yeah, we've we've talked about this. um In fact, we we picked up on it uh, when when I was talking to Sarah Mead uh, from yo Valley on on the podcast last month. This trend really that's that's coming about for you know fast compost and I, I know you know my wormery is quite an interesting example actually because if you if you chop it all up small mm-hmm. then you pop it in the wormery you know within a couple of weeks you've got some lovely stuff to work with but of course it's it's all on quite a small scale because it's just a wormery but when it comes to composting um you know you hear about these trends of these tabletop composters you know that people have got in their kitchens i don't know if anyone's seen those on the internet but but there's this advert going around where you can sort of pop some food waste in you know before you go to bed and in the morning
1: you've got this little bowl of compost (laughs) we we don't want waiting for anything these days do we
0: (laughs) it's all a bit instantaneous isn't (laughs) it I mean, it's a fantastic way. Don't get me wrong. It's a fantastic way of processing food waste, you know, because it's turning it into organic matter, which is great. But it's not going to be full of the nutrient, the life, you know, it's not going to be bursting with the stuff that the soil wants um, when you put the compost on the soil. Have you got any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I just think the soil is a massive ecosystem, isn't it? It's full of fungi and microorganisms and worms. I mean, there's a whole world going on in it, and I just don't think you're going to create that overnight, (laughs) basically. So I agree with you. I'd rather that it just got put in a landfill. I think there's nothing like the miracle of composting, and I think when you watch it happen, it's incredibly addictive almost. You you know, it is one of nature's miracles. You take all this stuff and it turns into soil. I mean, what more of a miracle is that? So I think that... If you want to use food waste that way, fine, but also experience the joy of composting in itself.
0: Very much so. So later on, we'll be hearing from Jack Wallington. He's a garden designer and author. And and he's going to be sharing with us his experience of moving from gardening in London to, to gardening in Yorkshire and, and how he adapted to the different climate. Now, you've gardened in some very extreme settings, Chris, from Scotland to Africa and Japan to Westminster. So... In each of those, you're going to have different climates, different um, conditions. How do you approach that very first season when you've moved somewhere new?
1: Well, I think, Fiona, um, this one word probably sums it up, and it's obviously a very crucial word to any garden, wherever they are, and that's observation, really. I think the first season, it's almost like going back to school. Obviously, you're armed with knowledge because you've, been you've been in the subject for a while, but it's almost like going back to school in the um, in terms of you need to kind of see what's going to work and what isn't. I'll give you an example, like we talked about composting earlier. Uh, a hot compost in, in a, or composting in a called cold composting in Cameroon takes six seven weeks because of the hot climate. So you're producing compost a lot quicker, and that's kind of so that changes the game straight away because obviously you're in different conditions. So you kind of find out over the season what's going to happen and you just it's pure observation a gardener that's been on a site for 20 years will know every detail of that site but that becomes because of the journey of time and when you're on a new one everyone takes different everyone takes a little bit of time to find out what's going on so really the key word is observation
0: uh, when you're in scotland chris what were you, what did you pick up there because i know that it does require a completely different approach to what we hear as sort of conventional wisdom. You know, actually coming back to your point of observation, yes, absolutely. You know, you need to observe what's around you, trust your instincts, go for it, try stuff out find out what works but actually um it is different gardening further north um, you know and, and right up in central scotland is going to be completely different to the kind of conventional advice that that is peddled you know on the telly and so forth
1: yeah we tend to be very southern um based don't we a lot of the journalists yeah. are based down here and I, and I always feel you know god bless beach Grove garden because they do a yes, great absolutely. job of, you know and, and i think that a good little example is of daffodil that flowers in the south Actually, if you travelled from the south when that daffodils ran and moved north, you'll find that it's three or four weeks later, it will flower in Scotland. So uh, it, it just nudge everything back four or five weeks. is a quite. We're talking about seed sowing earlier. It won't even be crossing the mines of the Scot- Scalders at the moment. It's just a, it, the season shunts up is the best way to describe it. Don't get carried away. They, they'll still be getting frosts in April, maybe even the beginning of May quite normally in Scotland. So they will know to take their time not to rush no matter how excited they're getting.
0: There's still plenty of examples of 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 fantastic gardens, aren't there? I mean, it, it's not it's not that you can't garden in that yeah. further north. It's just that it's different.
1: Well, you see, there's stuff you... I mean, temperate plants, when I worked in Scotland, so, you know, conifers, for example, just perform so much better up there because they've got that cooler climate. North of Fagus, conifers, all these sort of plants that actually do quite poorly down here, do really well up there because they need that cold snap to to uh, to get them going. So in some ways, they have better gardening conditions in Scotland because their variety, there the range of plants, especially trees and shrubs, that could be grown up there perform better than they do down here. So it's all pros and cons, I think, at the end of the day, Fiona.
0: I just think we're incredibly lucky, aren't we, to be on this sort of series of islands, you know, with such a temperate climate yeah. that, that can actually support... A completely different variety of plants, right from the top, right down to the furthest tip, Land's End John It's extraordinary, isn't it?
1: Well, that's why we have such amazing gardens in this country. I mean, even in Scotland, if you go to Logan Botanic Garden on the west coast, they grow tree ferns and palms because you've got that little microclimate. You're always looking for these little pockets and areas where you can experiment, play around, see what grows, what doesn't grow. And I think you're right. We've got absolutely brilliant territory to do that, a brilliant country for doing it. And it's reflected in our public gardens, in our parks, in everything we do as horticulturists. I'm excited about the year ahead, Chris. Are you? Yeah, very much. I always. Uh, by the time you know the end, this month ends and the days are getting longer. I will be starting to buzz. My good lady will be a bit of an allotment widow, I think, because I'll be down there a lot of time for <laughs> come come March and April.
0: Now, recently, Sarah Brown caught up with Jack Wallington, a returning guest to the Organic Gardening podcast. Jack is an ecological grower and landscape designer specialising in gardens with wildlife-friendly planting. In 2020, he moved from the suburbs of London to the hilly Yorkshire countryside. Sarah asked him about the differences in gardening in varying parts of the UK, the importance of sharing local gardening knowledge and the release of his latest book, A Greener Life.
3: So, Jack, you've moved from a small town garden in London to a huge growing area in rural, rural Yorkshire. Have you ever in past couple of years thought, oh, what have I done?
2: Yes, <laughs> multiple, <laughs> multiple times before that. The very first minute we moved in, our, our new house is about down a, a really bumpy lane, a bumpy track, which is about a third of a mile long. And it was pitch dark in the middle of winter. And we had our little our little car, which we've still got now, bumping down over these potholes. And we we're thinking, Are we, can we actually do this? Yeah. <laughs> it's so different to what we're now dealing with. Really.
3: Okay, so before I get you to describe this new wonderful growing space on a Yorkshire hillside, tell us what was it that prompted the move?
2: We'd we'd actually we we moved in at the end of the pandemic, but actually we were, um, which makes it look like we were one of the people who left the city to go into the countryside during the pandemic. But we'd actually been planning it for a long time before that, and it was because both of us grew up in the countryside, and my partner actually near where we lived, and I wanted to be back out in the countryside near wildlife. I wanted to be more immersed in it. And to be able to go for walks, to be able to go off the hills, direct from our doorstep. So that was one of the big drivers. The family was another part, because both our families live up in Yorkshire. Um, I suppose that the final one was my work. I thought our small garden was actually okay in terms of size. But um, for my work as a, a landscape designer, there was definitely a feeling that I needed more space to be able to practice and learn more things about plants.
3: Actually, it makes sense, doesn't it, to have more space, as you say, to trial things out, which is difficult to do in a, in, in a small garden. And also, there's the sense with a small garden that your work is done almost. I mean, I know you can tinker with it, but it must be very exciting having a whole new plot.
2: It's incredibly exciting. I think it's, um Yes, I think in a small space, I, there's some things I loved about it and I uh, I felt like i wish i could have had one more year in that small garden to see how the shrubs matured but actually having this new bigger garden is um it's so exciting for any gardener i think because it just allows for more dreaming more more planning and plotting and um and it's having more plants to see how they change and grow through the season so it's been a real that really has been a a, a joy to have that bigger space
3: Okay, so give us a whistle stop tour of your growing area, so the listener has a sense of where you are and and what's facing you. I mean, I've looked on your website, and I'm am I right in saying there's not one but two meadows and an orchard?
2: (laughs) Yes, you're right. Yeah, when we were looking, we weren't looking for anything as big as we've got. (laughs) And sometimes (laughs) I think that nervousness and worry comes from, oh, what, what have we done? so we've got our house and we're on a hillside about almost 300 meters above sea level so we're quite elevated (laughs) but it's on a near south facing slope so we get lots of sunshine and outside the little stone farmhouse cottage that we've got uh we have a small herb herb garden um around the patio outside the house Uh, directly in front of that there's the main garden which actually is big but it's about the size of the biggest gardens i've worked on in london and other cities but then Beyond that, there are, we've got two meadows, one small one and one big one joined together and together they're about two and a half acres. There's a, another area which was a, a meadow but was planted up about 15 or so years ago as a, a woodland. So that's now starting to mature and within there, housed in the middle is an orchard. Oh, wow. um, and adjoining the one last bit is adjoining the meadows is a um, an allotment or kitchen garden, which is about the size of my old allotment in London.
3: Gosh, this is a wonderful sense of space, I bet. And and I, you must have been so impatient right from the beginning, weren't you, of, of thinking, what can I do with this? You've inherited an organic plot, is that right?
2: Yes, I have to give a massive shout out to um the previous owners. So it's, it's called part of an old farm and it's been it's been there. About 300 years but and over the years it's been used for self-sufficient growing and living um, but a lot of the previous owners who had it for about 20 years they managed it in an organic way and they set up the kitchen garden they planted the forest and, and so we we've taken on what they've established so i've been very lucky particularly with the edible growing areas that i could just come in and weed the plots get them ready for the new year but it was all there, ready to take on. So I was very lucky with that. And I'm glad it. And to know that it's all been managed organically as well.
3: Yes, this is ticking all the boxes. But of course, the great thing is having been managed organically, I'm guessing your soil is in very good order.
2: It, it is. I feel so lucky to have it, I think, because it's it's kind of like a clay and loam mix. So it's very rich, very water-retentive, very different to what I was used to on my old allotment down south, which was very sandy and free-draining and then incredibly dry in the summer
3: you've actually inherited a space that's already been defined. That must be quite difficult because, in a sense, it's easier to start with a blank sheet, isn't it?
2: it? It is. I find it, personally, I find it much easier to start with a blank sheet and then you can respond to the landscape and the surroundings and create something that works for the, the house and the space. Whereas if you've got something that's already here, I find it really hard to well, so bit, Jack,
3: J- J- I'm going to stop you there. You're a garden designer, Jack. So what's going
2: on? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Sarah. Something's going on. I think it's partly because... There's so much history here uh, and the view is so so big and impactful. It almost doesn't matter what we do in the garden because the view's there. So who cares about the garden? (laughs)
3: But I also think that maybe it's because it is too personal. When you get your own space that's very different to professionally taking on a job of designing somebody else's space and so that can sometimes cause a tentativeness.
2: yeah i think mean, i think that's that's exactly it and i can't, haven't quite worked it all out in my head yet and i'm just enjoying the process of experimenting I may maybe i'll have one of these moments where i'll suddenly go actually we do need to change the shape of it but the um i don't want to wipe out what's already here i think part of it was we were looking for a blank canvas We got the opposite and I actually love what people have done before. So that story and that work has gone on before. I want to continue it and add add, add our bit to it, but um, I don't want to just get rid of it. So it's really hard to know what to add and what to take away. Um, So that's why the lawn in the main garden went straight away because that was an easy bit to change into a planting area. But yeah, no, it's fun. It's kind of, I think it's just about taking time and making small tweaks. gives me ideas and informs design for other people's gardens in a really good way.
3: Now I know Yorkshire isn't as far north as Scotland, for instance, but I realise that moving up north means not just a change in scale for your gardening, but possibly a completely different climate. It must be quite different to London, which is warm and and, and temperate, isn't it? Down south,
2: yeah, I it was only a short distance from the south to, to Yorkshire. I hadn't appreciated what a big change it would be. It feels like I've moved to another planet. <laughs> <laughs> up up north, where we are now in Yorkshire, it's surprisingly not as different in some respects in that it still got really dry during the droughts in the summer last year that was still a challenge but the soil was more water attentive but then the winters are much harsher maybe went below zero in london maybe once or twice a year just for two days whereas up here most of winter is can, can be is very, is much colder there's much more snow and ice
3: so you've run out and bought lots more jumpers gloves and coats is your first thing I guess
2: I have after, yeah, after years of refusing to wear a fleece is now my favorite item of clothing <laughs> <laughs> anything like jumpers heat yeah electric blankets everything yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but
3: it's interesting you say about the coldness and the soil presumably that means you have to adjust your sewing times
2: yes so I'm sowing later and I'll start sewing in London at the start of March whereas here I'm waiting a bit later into March even to sow tomatoes for instance I'm, I'll wait until mid to late March now it's not it's not as much of a difference as I expected I thought it would be huge differences but it's more more about a couple of weeks from. okay so I think I've been perhaps more surprised at how similar the climate is and just trying to work out the the very slight differences between them. I think that being on an exposed hillside is interesting because spring starts later than down in the valley. So actually, if I find people growing uh, slightly lower down and more sheltered, and it's warmer. It's temperatures are quite similar to down south.
3: I also live where, and because I'm surrounded by fields and more exposed, I know that we are two degrees lower than the temperature in the nearest town. So if we're going to get a frost, we get a much deeper frost than they do.
2: Uh, Whereas where we are, it's being slightly higher. Uh, the, the wind in particular is a real problem. So even in the summer, you can get gusts of wind that can blow everything over. Mm. <laughs> um, so having really, making sure the supports are really strong. Choosing ornamental plants that don't need staking can deal with that kind of battering. It's been, it's been a new lesson. I mean, that's, that's been the biggest, I think you've hit a the nail there in terms of the differences. Almost all of the factors combined. So the temperatures might not be that different, but actually it's slightly wetter or the, the wind and the rain and the wet combined. So down, down south in London, I could leave aeoniums outside over winter which are kind of very borderline tender whereas up here we've had a a fuchsia which is supposed to be hardy and they all died in the recent freeze which went down to minus five and i think that prolonged frozen ground very wet so plants at the extremes of or at the edges of hardiness boundaries is where the the differences are most apparent oh and, and also things like raw beans and peas which are normally grow outside over winter. But this winter in the freeze, they've all died. It was just a bit too much for them, which I found really surprising.
3: Mm. You mentioned the hardiness, and I know that if you buy a plant nowadays, it often gives an indicator of, of its hardiness. But I'm wondering if that isn't based slightly on southern, more sheltered climates, you know, whether there is a sort of a bias in growing information that tends to be more towards the south and the temperate. Would you agree?
2: Absolutely. There definitely is a bias towards southern gardens. Um, and I think that's just because there is a larger population down in the south. And particularly in that centred around London, there's a, this huge, dense, population of people. Um, so I think it just ha- naturally leans towards that. But it is certain things like we've been here for two years now. I mean, our time I've started testing more and more plants uh, that are slightly harder or tougher growing outside. So things like tomatoes and particularly in the vegetables, I'm looking for those tougher plants. That may not necessarily be the most interesting but they will actually survive and it's quite hard to find that kind of guidance there's there's not much around so i think there's definitely a rebalancing actually some of these tips would help southern gardeners as well if they just want to grow tough plants that don't need all of the money And um, So I think it's quite interesting for the South could learn from the North, whereas at the moment it feels like it's the, the information pushes is the other way around.
3: No, that's a very good point. And maybe this is your your role, your future role, Jack, is to, to be the voice <laughs> of the North. But I guess you're relying on your own expertise you intuitively know from your experience whether something is going to survive or not this information gap i think possibly the solution to it is local knowledge
2: yes absolutely uh, the, the first thing thing—and the first thing i did was when i moved here and i do this even on the holiday actually i have a little nose around and then um, have a little look in people's gardens to go for a walk and look in front gardens as a start and maybe look over a fence to see what people are growing in their back gardens without without being intrusive. (laughs) No, but I think
3: we all look into other people's gardens and it just (laughs) out (laughs) of
2: interest. (laughs) Funny enough, one of the best gardens I spotted, the front gardens. Um, I've later met the lady who grew that and we're now discussing the challenges and when I saw it, it looked immaculate but she said, well, actually, it's a really windy, challenging spot. So she's trying to find plants that can put up with those winter blasts. So I've, I've met lots of people who already who have shown me around their gardens and uh, are keen to talk about what i'm doing here and and we started sharing tips that's been more on the ornamental side so i've had it a bit of a challenge to find vegetable growers so far but there are a lot i think that is the way to go is to find people share knowledge
3: i think also when when you touch on vegetables i think there are almost bound to be local varieties of things as you know garden organic has its own heritage seed library which has actually just exactly that sort of thing so there will be a, a bath lettuce you know which was grown in Bath. And so there must be local varieties of peas and beans that have proven to have thrived in in the area in which you live.
2: Yes, I think that's right. I'm really interested in that kind of more local seed growing and so the, the heritage seed library is brilliant so i've grown certain vegetables from there and then kept the seed and kept them going uh, which has just been a one that's been a wonderful fun process and then when it works you also feel like oh i've done something good actually bigger than me just growing vegetables to eat i'm actually keeping something going over the years but that's right. i know there are there are a few local seed suppliers which I found as well, where they, they're growing a few things. They, they only sell the stuff that they know grows well here. The ones that I've tried of those have grown really well. Certain local squashes and courgettes and kales. Yes, I think you're, you're totally right.
3: Also, you touch on the fact that you've saved your own seeds, and that must be key to it. It's in its DNA to survive in your particular plot, so therefore you're almost guaranteed to have success, aren't you, subsequently?
2: Yes, all I do is a very simple process. I, I choose maybe four or five particular vegetables I'm going to save a seed from, and then I'll ring fence those. So maybe with a kale, for instance, red Russians, which I grow every year. Um, and there was some already growing on our plot when we moved in, uh, I knew which one it was, and I just let some of those flower and go to seed, save the seeds, resow them. Just by you selecting the strongest plants and taking the seeds, then over time, That must be having some kind of effect. It's a bit like producing your own seed strain in a way because you start to choose the the plants that grow strongest on your your soil, in your plot. So it's very bespoke to you. Yeah, you're totally, you're, you're right on this. I mean, it's exactly what any vegetable grower or seed producer has done over the years, but you're just doing it for your plot, which is quite exciting.
3: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. moving on to the ornamentals and the flowers and the shrubs, have you been able to expand your own thoughts on planting and design, which reflects this expansion in your growing space?
2: Yes. So number one is low maintenance. So in, in our small garden previously, it was really small and I wanted a really high maintenance garden with lots of stuff to do through the year in a very small footprint where we are now that's completely unmanageable because it's just there's so much to do so i need to keep on minimizing what i need to do but i don't want it to be any less exciting so the type of planting i've worked my path towards is one which is a very free it's kind of like a structured natural look where i'll choose plants so the whole thing looks like it's holding together and a little bit planned but it's very free and wild and looks more like half like a natural planting i think it's almost that, that meadow growing where you choose plants that will spread and mingle and can, compete and live with each other in a nice balance, creating a really tight mat, so you get less of the plants that you don't want growing in there. And they kind of just do their own thing. So that, that's what I've started to do, is getting these tough plants that don't need staking, that will spread, put up with the wind, can survive the, the harsher winters, and just do everything themselves. Comes a very low maintenance garden with maybe one chop back at the end of winter, just to get rid of any dead stems that are still there. And then they will just start coming through in a succession. That's the plan, and also looking at—I suppose—looking at bigger plants, bigger swaves of things. Before I'd have hundreds of plants in a small area. Now I've, I'll have one plant across a couple of meters in certain places, or having looking at shrubs and trees. So it's just a, a bigger scale.
3: It's like from an artistic point of view, it's like you're using broad brushstrokes, aren't you, rather than tiny little detailed delineation.
2: Yes, it is. Then I, I kind of—I want that, but I want to try and make sure I'm not planting in blocks. So I think the additional way of planting is planting in big blocks of plants which looks looks lovely but i really love that mingled look that a, a meadow gives Um so a good example is a geranium they, they kind of cover the ground but then other things that are slightly taller can grow through them so things like Rhonocastrum and uh, actually there's a, a wildflower a tufted vetch which seems to grow almost in a perfect balance of geraniums. They're two quite vigorous spreading plants, but the two of them seem to grow in and over each other, and they're really quite beautiful with purple and pink flowers. So, And it creates this really tough mat that nothing else can get through.
3: <laughs> it's taking me back to our conversation about weeds. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is the difference between a weed and a wildflower? But also the robustness of weeds. So you were very understanding of how to use weeds in your garden because they jolly well know how to survive. Five, don't they?
2: Yes, I think that's um, yeah, you, you caught me out there because I was trying not to use the word weeds and I kept saying <laughs> it's self-sowing seedbeds uh, <laughs> or wildflowers and it, the plants that you don't want necessarily. I think you, the, the word you just use, robust and robustness, that's what I'm looking for these days, is just stuff that will look after themselves. Because so I think we have gardens you want to enjoy them, and I think if you're constantly doting on a certain plant trying to get it to, to grow and survive, um, it might be time just to think actually. Should I try something else <laughs> just to save myself some time in the garden? Unless you really love that particular one. But yes, I think in looking at things like oxide daisy, which lots of people would think is a, a weedy wildflower, <laughs> I've actually got it in the garden. It is self-sowing everywhere. It's trying to ride in that fine line of well-behaved, weedy behavior without going too far and becoming a proper weed.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I understand that. And also when you have a large area to to manage, it's very hard to keep your eye on the ball everywhere, isn't it? Uh, Because each different area, and you've got meadow, you've got orchard, coppicing, you've got vegetables, you've got ornamentals, you've got the whole bag, haven't you, of goodies. And it it just is quite difficult keeping your eye on it all. So it makes sense to have areas that you can think, okay, I don't have to worry about you.
2: Yes, it's, it's impossible to worry about it, to do it all at once. You almost, the first two years I've been learning how to get into the cycle of i'll do this this week and this this week and you can't go back to it so you have to get it done because you've got some you've got 10 other things to worry about coming up in the future and <laughs> um, particularly the ornamental garden i really want it to be the wildlife ornamental garden and um, but i just want it to look after itself it's in the early years at the moment i think it'll take me about five years to get the right balance this year in particular coming up i'm excited because lots of the small plants i bought are now big enough perennials to divide, and um, some of the shrubs will start to be big enough to have some impact. It's exi- this is going to be an exciting year.
3: Did you find you get impatient? Because you've you've carried so much in your head since the move two years ago. Are you impatient to see it all? <laughs> yes,
2: I have personally been thinking, planning this move for about 10 years. I think actually to start off with I was impatient, I wanted to do everything straight away. And then very quickly, I realized the plans I was thinking of aren't right for this place. Now that we're here, I just need to get to know the place. I think I get, mainly get impatient with the framework. So if I, if I don't have a planting bed ready to at least plant some things into, I get impatient with that. But once the things are planted and I can watch them grow, I can then be very patient. So I'm very happy to wait five years for our Estrantia collection to build up to have proper impact because I can see them growing and flowering a bit and see them establishing themselves, so that bit's fun. But we've got a a bit of patio I want to extend very slightly. I'm impatient for that to be done, so I just want it done and out of the way so I can concentrate on the plants, really.
3: Yeah, 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 you're such a plants person. But I think it's also about getting the bones right, isn't it, the structure right? That's just hard labor. That's a little bit like doing when you're decorating a house. You have to do all that preparation work, first of all, before you can start playing with colors and paints and wallpapers and fabrics.
2: Yes. Funny you mentioned the house. We've only just had our house decorated two years in. But in the first week, I was out getting the um, the shape of the beds done in the garden. So you can see where my priorities were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Quite right, too. <laughs> have you yeah. had any surprises if anything's worked Better than you thought, or perhaps not quite as well as you hoped they would.
2: Yeah, some real surprises are going back to that climate difference. I expected it in some ways to be a bigger difference than it actually is. You know, some things like verbena bonariensis and some of the more tender herbs, like things like rosemary and tuck, they're all completely fine up here. Things like dahlias on the allotment, cut flower patch, I didn't realize, but then dahlias just started growing in the spring when we moved in. Um, And I was like, oh, wow, they survived. In winter in quite soggy clay lonely soil and it really does get wet in winter so that was really surprising that some of these things survived the fact that i've been able to grow some tomatoes outside in the summer so that was all fine
3: were those the smaller cherry varieties because i have to grow I'm, those outside
2: yes i found that the cherry tomatoes actually did better outside than the polytunnel but the um but in some of the meat even medium sized salad tomatoes Beef steaks are too big and take too long to ripen, really. (laughs) Um, But the medium sized tomatoes, if you get the right varieties, yeah, so it was interesting watching, slowly learning what doesn't doesn't work here.
3: Mm. I think um, it's I think it's lovely that you want to continue the tradition of the growing space. I love that because it's got a heritage, and you're you're just part of it, aren't you? You're just a small blip in the whole lengthy life of this. I don't want to do you down in any
2: way at all. But I really enjoy that we're just a blip. <laughs> I think yes. that's in a way I hadn't expected. I kind of, I love this that it, it feels like we don't even own the place really. It's like we're we're here for the time we're here, and we're going to look after. After it, and then pass it on to someone else. And I'm, in a way, I'm almost looking forward to that point when we pass it on to someone else who can love it as much as, as we do, and as much as the previous owners had. So yeah, it's all quite, it's all fun, but it's all all of these challenges and, and things that we thought about patience and impatience.
3: I think I really like when you say that you're enjoying the heritage of the, the growing space and, and you will pass it on because to me, that sits you, the gardener, firmly as part of the garden, not the master and controller of it, not the most important thing in the garden. You are just part of that whole ecosystem. And I know you agree because you've written a book, your most recent book on this theme. It's called A Greener Life. And you very much talk about how, as the gardener, you're part
2: of the garden. Yes, exactly. And even though I've written a book on this, I still find it quite hard to explain, but I see ourselves as, we're not here to control everything. We're almost here, it's the other way around. We're here to help everything else do really well. So Even in a a small garden, like our old London one, you could do something really good for the world by producing a home for insects or growing your own food. So you reduce transport miles and packaging. I think in in A Greener Life, I tried to capture all of that by telling our little story of our small London plot and allotment. And organic gardening, of course, is completely core to all of that. It makes things easier um, as well as as better for you and the planet.
3: I think it's also that the the thrust is that you are part of nature. You're not removed from it. And I think the danger is that if you watch television or if you go to a garden centre, somehow you're dislocated from the fact that you are as valid in your garden as the ladybird is, as the worm is, as the soil microbes. Somehow there's something about garden centre gardening which I have a distaste for because it, it urges you to control it all. You know, you're, you're killing things so that to make the space as you want it to be.
2: This is it. but I, I, I dislike this kind of commercialism of nature, not just because it's killing things, but it's almost, I think it's removing what's really good for us. And it's taking away the fun and the joy and the connectedness that we get out of being in a garden and finding our role in or a, a part of our role in life is that actually we have we evolved and grew up living in nature and as time goes on we become more and more detached from it and that, that's, that's challenging for people living in cities as I used to do but we can reconnect with it in an outdoor space And that might be our own garden or a community garden or a park or just going for a walk in the woods you can get the same joy of walking in the woods looking down on the ground to see what bulbs start shooting in the spring is the same as what I'm doing in the garden but anyway yeah and seeing that we do have a role in the garden because we can plant things that will help like um fennel was a good one fennel was useful for us as a, an edible herb but also it attracts hoverflies and which eat all the aphids that's one of my top plants for starting to create this nice balance in the garden and that's kind of our role to gently steer things I think without going in with a blitz of a spray and wiping everything out just so that we can have immaculate plants with no life buzzing around them.
3: Yeah. Well, the book's had rave reviews, and indeed the Times called it the Gardening Book of the Year, which is fantastic. Congratulations. And I think we'll be diving deeper into this book in our next podcast episode because there's so many themes in there that we can discuss and that listeners will definitely relate to. I can't wait for that, Jack. But just one more quick question before we end. What are your plans for the future? Do you think you'll still be there in Yorkshire in 10 years' time? Will you witness the maturity of those trees that you've just planted?
2: <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. so I think our, our plan is to, this move was a long-term move. So I think we're, we're, we're able for hopefully 20 years, depending on what life throws at us. So we're going to be we're here for the long term. It's a small, small holding farm, and we want to turn it into a productive nature reserve that so puts nature at the top of the chain, but it's still productive for food and for uh, pave and meadows and things and wood from the coppice for different for furniture and other elements. So we're trying to gonna try and strike that balance and continue what the previous owners started. So that's the plan.
3: Brilliant. Well, I hope I'm around as well to come and witness it. I'd love that. I'd love that, Jack. Thank you. Thank you for walking us around your new plot. And it's been such a delight talking to you.
2: Likewise. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a lovely chat.
3: And if listeners want to get pictures of the Yorkshire Plot, it's all on your website, isn't it? jackwallington.com. And you can also get a copy of your most recent book. Indeed, all of your books are there, or at your local independent bookseller. It's called A Greener Life. And Jack and I will be discussing it in detail in our next podcast episode
0: so now time to open up the post bag i'm here with anton and chris hi anton hi fiona hi chris hi fiona hi anton So the first question, I want to plant raspberries and intend in other years to plant other soft fruit as well. I'm wondering what the best way would be for me to mulch them for both weeds and water retention purposes. I've read around and it seems that black plastic mulch is highly recommended, but I'm very reluctant to use such a horrible material unless it really is tremendously better than anything else. I'd be really grateful for your advice on that. And that's from Catherine. Thanks ever so much, Catherine. Well, let's talk to Anton first. What would you do in this instance?
4: Well, I think she's right in trying to avoid plastic if possible. And in most situations, if you haven't got a really bad perennial weed problem, you should be able to keep on top of things. So first of all, I would sort of weed the spot initially just to try and make sure I've got all the sort of perennial weeds roots out. And then I would lay down some cardboard and and put a thick layer of mulch on top. And that should keep on top of your weeds and it will also keep the moisture in. It's quite permeable as well, so it won't sort of keep the moisture out if it's rained as well.
0: Okay, well, Chris, we know that at your allotment, you've had a huge problem with couch grass and mare's tail. So you probably take slightly stronger measures, is that right?
1: Well, I'm pretty much forced to, Fiona, in some parts of the allotment. I mean, I agree with Anton totally. I, where I've, normally, where I've had weeds, the first thing I'd do is assess what weeds I've got, what kind of problems they're going to give me. So the, the cardboard and, and composting works perfectly well with most weeds. Horsetail? A little bit more determined, and I know the listeners to this podcast have heard me mention it numerous times, but I do have an area down the bottom where it's just really thick. in fact, I did cover it um with a with a weed membrane for a couple of years, took it up, and it still grew it's that determined it would come through cardboard, so I have to really put down. A woven fabric, pember woven fabric, in that area. If I want to grow, so I cover. I cover it with that. I put it. I pin it into place with tent pegs, and I slip plant through it, and I grow courgettes and stuff like this. Single plants in it, and it works perfectly. A good little tip for you though is it does shred around the edges, and that obviously can cause pollution. So what I tend to do is keep your hand back a bit from the edge, but I use a lighter. And I seal the edges off and that stops it shredding and getting all over the allotment. Um, so that's quite a good little tip. But it is at the end of the day, Fiona, a last resort. I wouldn't use it if I could. I'd practice the organic methods that we use that Anton mentioned. But in this instance, I really I'll be I'll be fighting a losing battle, so I need to use it.
0: Okay, well, we'll wish Catherine good luck with her soft fruit bed. Moving on to leeks now, um, Amelia's written to us. She says, I think my leeks got attacked by leek moth. Will I always have it in my garden or is it a one-off thing? And if it's here to stay, well, then how do I defend against it? So I'm going to come back to you here, uh, Anton, again on this one.
4: So first of all, you want to determine whether it really is leek moth, whether it might actually be allium leaf minor, because the damage does actually look quite similar. You end up with these sort of twisted looking leaves and then all your sort of leeks rotting at the bottom. So it is actually quite easy to distinguish once you know um just what to look out for. Um, so if you happen to see any of the pests, the leek moth is a little caterpillar, so it's got legs. That's the easiest thing to recognize it by, whereas the allium leaf miner is just like a little maggot. It doesn't have any legs. And also the allium leaf miner. You also see the pupae inside your leeks. So they look like sort of little brown grains of rice. They're really quite disgusting. So that's the first thing: determine which of the pests it is. The leek moth tends to be most common around in the south of England. Whereas Allium Leaf Miner, it started off in the Midlands in about the early 2000s, and then it's just spread around the country. And Garden Organic did a bit of work to look at the spread of it. And I think we last looked at it in about 2017, and we found that... It was a problem in lots of areas of the country, but nobody north of Manchester reported a problem. Um I don't know it might have moved beyond there by by now, because that was sort of quite a few years ago. So whichever pest it is, the only solution really is to cover your crop with um plastic mesh netting. Um it needs to be quite a fine mesh, otherwise they will lay their eggs through it and the easiest thing is to keep your crop covered throughout the whole season and um, they do have two generations they lay their eggs once in the spring and once again in the autumn the easiest thing is just keep your crop covered throughout the whole growing season and that will keep out both allium leaf miner and the leek moth
0: i've been very lucky i've never had it i know we have it at wrighton we have to um, take all those precautions chris have you
1: ever suffered with this I haven't. And uh, it's interesting because um, I know people on my allotment site have had it, definitely. I know some of my uh, neighbours further down have had it. Sounds to me like, um, from what Anton's saying, it's only a matter of time before it invades me because it sounds like it's pretty profuse. So I suppose the answer for me is um, not to take things for granted and get them covered when I plant them this year and make sure I don't get attacked in the first place. A preemptive strike, I believe it might be called.
0: Absolutely, because it sounds like once you've got it, they're there to stay. OK, thank you. Right, moving on to... A really great question. How do I propagate ginger? Arthur has asked us this question. Well, Arthur, I propagated ginger last year. Now, propagate's a bit of a strong word, actually. I sprouted a ginger root um, at home. Um, I put it above my hot water tank so it was nice and warm and cozy. Um, It did take, I think, eight to 10 weeks. I remember noting the the date I, I did it, and I'd certainly started it off in February. But it did sprout and then grew into a lovely, sort of long, elegant store with wonderful sort of stringy leaves that kind of look lovely and floaty. So it's a gorgeous house plant. So great idea um, and very easy to do. I, I soaked the um, root before I did it. I'd read somewhere that sometimes there's an, a growth inhibitor that's, that's put onto the roots and I just got hold of a root from a local greengrocer. So I, I wanted to make sure. So I just soaked it overnight before I, I did it, but had great success and it was great fun. I, I really enjoyed doing it.
1: Chris, have you ever grown it? Yes, I have. I've grown it like you as a houseplant, not with any great expectations. I did it for a bit of fun, pretty much. That's kind of what well, I did. It. It's a great thing to do with the kids, isn't it? You know, that anticipation of planting it and then waiting all that time. I have... Been very fortunate to work with gingerber AC plants. They're a big family in the tropics. I also work with them in the Edinburgh Botanics in the greenhouse. They're incredible plants. They have amazingly beautiful flowers, which flower from the base of the plant. That's probably for whatever's propagating them, and they're waxy and um really beautiful usually reds and yellows you'll see them if you go to queue or somewhere like that but whether we can get them to flower in that as a house plant i very much doubt it because they like the humidity but you might want to try maybe use some of our um bockin 14 uh comfrey liquid feed start using that in may june you know that's very high in potassium potassium promotes fruit fruit and flower so maybe give it a go i think the whole thing is just good fun you know it's one of those ones where. Uh, a little miracle of plants isn't it you take a bit of a rhizome you plant it your weight ages it starts to appear you get a beautiful plant what's to, what's to lose what's to lose.
0: Anton your view is that well, you wouldn't get a huge crop of ginger off this. Yeah
4: like the other people here I've tried it as well just and um, just for a bit of fun to see what would happen um and it certainly did produce a lovely looking plant, but when you dig it up at the end of the season, I found actually I got about the same amount of ginger as I'd put in in the the first place. So as a sort of economic (laughs) exercise, it doesn't probably make much sense, but as a bit of fun, it, it really is a nice thing to do. I have also tried turmeric as well which works really nicely.
0: That's a great idea.
4: Yeah, I mean that grows really nicely but it dies down really quite suddenly in the autumn as well so and then it sprouts back again in the spring. So you, you won't have killed it if you see the leaves dying down in the autumn that's just what it does does naturally. But turmeric is a lovely sort of fragrant sort of smelling root with a beautiful orange colour. So it's worth just getting one from an Asian grocers just to see what it looks like. It's certainly got a nicer sort of flavour and aroma than the powder.
0: It's brilliant, isn't it, to think that we can produce our own houseplants uh, in this way. I think that's great fun. We've got one more here from Christina. Christina is like many of us trying to be peat free and and ended up with some compost bags that contained peat. Let me read her question because it's, it's quite detailed. I'm wanting to use Westland John Innes number three peat free compost in my permanent container plantings, but I'm unsure if I should mix it with peat free multi-purpose compost or peat-based multipurpose compost, as I have lots of peat-based multipurpose compost left over from last year. I think mixing peat-free multipurpose and peat-free John Innes number three would be better than mixing peat-based and peat-free, as that might cause an imbalance in nutrients. Hopefully there's someone who can provide me with some clarity on the subject, as there's so many compost types on the market now that I'm lost, which is why I hate container gardening. Oh dear, Christina. We sorry to hear that you're you're not enjoying your container gardening, and we do sympathise. It's very difficult when you go to the garden centre and see so many different bags, and you're just faced with this this kind of enormous choice. It's it's really hard, and and the labelling is not clear. Um. So so we do sympathise. What would you do in this instance, Anton?
4: Well, if I still did have some peat left. Um, I I think it's important just to use it up really. Um, There might be small differences in the sort of nutrient content. Usually they've added nutrients to most composts anyway. Um, So there might be small sort of differences between that and the peat-free compost, but I think they're going to be quite marginal really. I would just mix the two if you need to, um, use it up and perhaps not worry so much as well. I think just just get on and have a go.
0: And Chris, you must be sorry to hear that somebody's lost <laughs> passion for container gardening so how about a few words of encouragement from you
1: yeah i'd certainly say don't give up the container garden it's uh it's great fun and it gives you a lot of options because you're more in control because because the space is quite small and i absolutely love it so please don't give up please don't hate it but i can understand the problem particularly the one about what you choose you know i would I agree with anton I'd use it up what you've got already there's no point you know wasting it or throwing it away that's you know there's no point in that maybe mix it with some compost and use it as a mulch around the base of trees or something maybe I'd do that but I wouldn't waste it and um, as far as compost go just do a little bit of research I think it, the rule is I think from my own peak free experiences if I buy a five quid bag it tends to be no good if I spend a little bit, bit more money on a, on a product that's got good uh, reviews and good reputation then it does really well it does the same as any compost so maybe a little bit of home work don't go for the cheapest options and hopefully you'll be growing tons of container gardening plants next year
0: that sounds great all right thanks both cheers
1: Fiona cheers Edson thank you
0: be sure to check out Jack Wallington's new book A Greener Life you can find out more on his website jackwallington.com we'll be diving into the book on our next unpruned episode coming soon if you've not done so already, why not subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss it? That's it until next month. If you want to learn more, check out our website gardenorganic.org.uk. It's full of fantastic advice from our horticultural experts. You can also follow us on social media. We're at gardenorganicuk. Our thanks to Kevin MacLeod for the music.